Hi, I'm Mark Lentz, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast, our series of conversations with scholars working in the field. Uh, with us today is Afshan Ostavar. He's at the Naval Postgraduate School and the author of a new book, Vanguard of the Imam, Religion, Politics, and Iran's Revolutionary Guards. Uh, Afshan, welcome uh, to the program. Thanks for having me. So you've just written this book about uh, the, the IRGC, and for those of us who follow regional politics, it's a topic that's uh, a lot in the news these days. Uh, what do you think people are getting wrong about uh, the IRGC and its political military role in the region? That's a good question. I think, I think two things. Uh, one, the IRGC's power is often exaggerated, where they are, how much power they have, what they're able to do. Uh, but on the flip side of that, I think it's also uh, often dismissed, where they see the IRGC, uh, particularly from the U.S. perspective, as a, a convenient foil, right, as, as, as the bad guy in Iran, a way to sort of build up pressure against Iran. How do we, uh, how do we make the case against Iran? Well, we use the IRGC and all of its nefarious activities as an excuse, right? And so this leads people to sort of, I think, uh, dismiss what the IRGC actually is doing. You see this in Yemen in particular, where mm -hmm. there's countless sort of articles that come out that say the IRGC is not important in Yemen, the Houthis don't matter to Iran, this sort of thing, which I think is also missing the point, right? So I think it's it's hard to get them right, but it's easier to sort of exaggerate or minimize their influence. So let's go back, uh, if not, maybe not to the beginning, but let's go back a little ways. And so at what point does the IRGC start playing a major role in Iran's military foreign policy right. in the region? Well, from the f literally from their founding, from 1979 on, they had this idea of wanting to be involved in the world. They called it exporting the revolution at the time, but it was really a strategic idea, right, that in order for Iran's revolution to, to be safeguarded, that it would need allies uh, in the world, right? And in order to, to sort of undermine the United States and the grand imperialist dream of foreign powers in the Middle East and the Muslim world, you needed to sort of awaken uh, sort of activists, you know, to sort of shake off the shackles of, of uh, the imperialist United States. And they wanted to do this through building up allies, essentially, at the sub-state level with other armed groups. That's essentially what happened. So they got involved in this very early on. And as soon as they started, the Palestinian issue was number one. Defeating Israel was big. Uh, in the Israel's uh, invasion of Lebanon in 1982, uh, getting involved on the side of the Palestinians, but also, more importantly, the, the Lebanese Shiites became sort of a, a cause du jour that they, uh, that they uh, followed. However, none of that really mattered, I think, on the grand strategic level until really the fall of Saddam Hussein in 2003. I think the fall of Saddam of, uh, Hussein in 2003 and the rise of Shiites to power in Iraq is really what took the IRGCs from sort of playing a game of, you can say, sort of terrorism or, or, or building up clients to one that had real sort of geopolitical strategic implications. So how soon after the invasion of Iraq do you see the IRGC, you know, really changing its role? Yeah, you, they got involved very early on because their, their clients, the Supreme Council for the Islamic Revolution in Iraq and, and the armed wing of that uh, organization, the Badr military, uh, now the Badr organization, uh, the Badr organization was literally a part of the IRGC during the Iran-Iraq war, and during the 90s it had sort of kept close uh, contact. So when those sort of Iraqi expat groups came back to Iraq, uh, 
the IRGC, by, by extension, and Iran, sort of mm -hmm. by extension, uh, had influence, or at least had a lever of influence or, or, or contacts. But it wasn't really till 2005, when the election of Af Mahmoud Ahmadinejad uh, happened in Iran, that you saw sort of all parts of the regime kind of work together. And very early on, after uh, Ahmadinejad was elected, you started seeing signs of IRGC military involvement uh, in Iraq through... Uh, sort of client groups, proxy Shiite groups, um, and and very quickly through the next two years, they became the Shiite groups uh, in particular became one of the most important sectors of the insurgency against the U.S. and that continued through to 2011. So you saw from 2005 through 2011, I think a very steep rise of the influence of those groups, uh, but also of the IRGC sort of by extension. Now, is 2011 an inflection point or just more of the same? No, so at the end of 2011, you have the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Iraq and the failure of the status of forces of agreement. And uh, I think that for the IRGC and for Iran was really the high point of their influence in Iraq because there was a lot of reasons why SOFA fell through. Uh, but uh, the argument has been made by others, and I think it's true that Iranian influence over Shiite politicians in Iraq uh, was a large percentage of the reason why the Shiites in Iraq couldn't come to an agreement of, of allowing U.S. forces. And so 2011 was, was sort of this benchmark for the IRGC, where they were, in a sense, able to defeat uh, or scuttle the American... Uh, platform for Iraq, mm -hmm. right? The American project for Iraq was, was torpedoed largely or partly due uh, to IRGC involvement and through the involvement of Iraqi Shia groups. And so I think for them that was, that was sort of a blossoming of, their, of what could mm -hmm. be achieved by sponsoring and working with clients outside of the country. And then they move in a big way into Syria. Yeah. And to me, this is, this is really where all of this comes to, uh, comes to fruition, right? Because after 2011, Iraq was, you know, struggling, obviously, and what the IRGC or Iran had inherited in Iraq was questionable. You had sort of an ally that could uh, be an intermediary with the United States in a way that you could trade with, that could open up investment opportunities. There was ways to make money and, and become friends, but, you know, uh, a state that's just getting off the ground isn't necessarily a very strong ally for Iran. But very quickly, you had uh, the, the conflict arise in Syria, and suddenly that was, uh, that was uh, a very large risk for Iran, because if Syria were lost, if Assad were, were gone, and were that to be replaced by some sort of amalgam of Islamist or jihadist groups that are supported by Saudi Arabia or Qatar or Turkey, Iran's investment in Syria, which really were focused on Hezbollah and Israel, would be probably erased, mm -hmm. if not, you know, uh, uh, diluted to some extent, right? So uh, Iran took Syria very seriously and facilitated the involvement of all of its clients, Lebanese Hezbollah, uh, the Iraqi uh, Shia militia groups as well, um, and they became a very important part of, of buffering and, and protecting the Assad regime and helping it from, mm -hmm. from falling initially and now, more recently, from re regaining territory. Now, has this been controversial at all inside of Iran and this expanding role, uh, direct Iranian role inside of Syria? I think decreasingly so. It's certainly, there was a moment where I think Iranians realized that what 
had happened in in Syria in 2011 bore a lot of similarities to what had happened in Iran in 2009. And so there is a very clear, I think, uncomfortability uh, on the behalf of Iranians to, to find what Iran was doing okay in Syria, right? It was, it was clearly not okay. They were supporting a dictator, they were supporting a dictator crushing uh, and killing his own people. On the other hand, when you had the rise of ISIS and the explosion of ISIS in, across the border into Iraq, I think that changed everybody's calculation, uh, especially with sort of the hypersectarianism that, that ISIS brought to bear. If you're an Iranian Shiite, which is, you know, you're, you're uh, in a, a majority uh, population in the country, you can't help but feel some sort of sensitivity uh, to what ISIS is doing against co-religionists in other countries, right? And so it's, the case for Assad becomes much stronger, I think, at that moment. So after ISIS, I think that the problem of dealing with Assad became, I think, much like it is in the United States. Well, what are you going to do? You have ISIS on one side, you have this, this autocrat on the other. They're both bad news, but at least one's bad news in a, in a, I don't want to say a post-sectarian way, but almost in an in a old-school way that they can appreciate, whereas ISIS was something different um, and much more, you know, uh, less palatable to the Iranians. So I, I don't see it anymore. I think now it's uh, to part of the, the segment of the population that's maybe more sympathetic to the regime. There's a, a nationalist sort of mm -hmm. discourse that goes along with the Syrian regime. And for others, I think it's more uh, one of, of being apathetic to it. Given the way things have developed, could you imagine uh, the IRGC just leaving Syria at some point, or are they basically going to be a semi-permanent part of the institutional, military, political framework of whatever Syria becomes? I think certainly, I mean, you know, you don't know what, what's in their sort of strategy book, but I think clearly from everything that they've said and done up to this point, there's no reason why they would ever leave Syria. In fact, the whole point is to have a stronger presence in Syria, not only to maintain what had been uh, but to increase something into into a much more formidable presence on the borders of Israel um, and creating a, a very, you know, um, as King Abdullah had, had warned about in 2003, something that is not unlike a transnational network of mm -hmm. pro-Iranian IRGC clients that exist from the Mediterranean Sea in Lebanon all the way through Syria and Iraq into Iran. I think... I, I don't think that that was the IRGC's plan going into it, but now that things are shaking out the way that they are, I think there's this this vision of, hey, we have a block of, of polities, if not states, uh, from Iran to Lebanon that are mostly on board with what Iran wants to do, and I, I don't think that's something that they want to lose. Let's flip the uh, the arrows a little bit. Um, so you mentioned that uh, they really rise to prominence with Ahmadinejad's victory in 2005. Um, let's talk about the domestic politics of the IRGC. And uh, so you read a lot about their growing uh, business empire. Sure. You read a lot about their support for this politician or that politician. Um, what can you say about where they stand in the Iranian political landscape now, especially given yeah. where Iran is? Well, to me, they have been, uh, particularly since the end of the, the Iran-Iraq war, a, a pillar of, of the sort of domestic power landscape within Iran. They're 
the largest constituency that supports the supreme leader of Iran. So to me, the, the, the supreme leader, the edifice of su the supreme leader's power rests on the IRGC as its core constituency. I mean, the, the, the IRGC is not only politically in line with, with the supreme leader or vice versa, depending on how you want to look at it, uh, but is literally the, the coercive apparatus of, of the supreme leader's influence within Iran. Is this loyalty to the individual of Ali Khamenei or to the institution of the supreme leader? I believe it's to both. I mean, the, the Khamenei had a particularly weak start as supreme leader um, uh, and needed a constituency. Uh, he lacked sort of the status uh, and standing that Khomeini had had. He didn't have a large sort of religious following. He didn't have uh, many religious students. He had been an activist for most of his career. He needed people to support him, and the IRGC supported him both institutionally, but also more broadly in their sort of their their broad networks of, of war veterans and hardliners and 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 sort of the Basij militia and, and whatnot. So they have developed a very close uh, um, working relationship, if not very close affinity. Uh, for each other over the last two decades. Um, but I see the IRGC as being much, not just devoted to Khamenei, but being devoted to the office of the Supreme Leader. Uh, the Supreme Leader itself is the center point of the Islamic system of Iran, right? The Vilay de Fahri, the, the jurist of the, or the, the, the rule of the jurist uh, that is Iran's theocracy. And I think that the, the symbolic importance of the supreme leader is something that that the IRGC doesn't want to doesn't want to do without and, you know you a few years ago particularly after 2009 when the IRGC was involved in the crackdown and you had a lot of sort of i think uh, a lot of talk about their rising power at that time um, one of the discussions was, well, is, is the IRGC moving towards a, a dictatorship, right? Are they just going to squeeze out uh, the supreme leader? And, and one of the arguments that I make in my book is I, I, I don't think that they'll do that because I think, um, I think the supreme leader is very much not just important to them symbolically, but is, is tied into their identity. They are the servants of the supreme leader. They are literally the guardians of that Islamic system. Uh, they're not they don't want to be the leaders of it. That doesn't mean that they don't want to have their way, but they get their way more often than not. Uh, but they they survive when they don't get their way. You know, they they they're okay with that. I think. So when you read things like uh, about their growing business interests and that sort of thing, is that something which might lead them to change their conception of self-interest? Like for example, you see in Egypt with the military yeah. becoming ever more part of the domestic economy. Yeah. Is there something like that which might happen where it changes who they are as their interests evolve? Yeah, I, there's. I mean, certainly there's that possibility, right? But I think what differentiates the IRGC from the Egyptian military, or, or let's say the military in Pakistan or Burma or other places that have strong uh, militaries that are involved in some aspect of authoritarian rule is that the IRGC is far less corporate uh, an identity or entity rather than than either uh, of of those other militaries. They their their commercial interests are both institutional but also um, you know, sort of satellite interests. Right, their interests of particular commanders of particular people of of former IRGC members. Uh, that, that have investments in media, for instance. You know, most of the, or a large part of the media landscape uh, uh, in Iran uh, to this day has a, 
you know, a, a direct connection, a direct link to the IRGC. That's why you, you so often see in the media, you know, in Western reporting, you know, IRGC-linked media or this news source, mm -hmm. which is close to the IRGC. Because people don't, it's not IRGC proper, but it's close to the IRGC. And to me, this sort of, I don't know, this diffused nature of their investments keeps them from acting in unison as, as a corporate board, right? Um, and then I'll add this to it. There's a lot of speculation about their commercial interests, but there's not a lot of evidence of it. I mean, that is not to say that they're not massively powerful in Iran's economy. That's just to say we don't exactly know how and where uh, they are powerful because most of it's front companies, most of it... Uh, is involved in illicit shipments or, or imports or exports or whatever. But we don't exactly know what aspects of the Iran of Iran's economy, how much of the GDP, for instance, is controlled by the IRGC. So is, there, the, any, is there any way to know then whether the lifting of sanctions has strengthened or weakened them? Uh, I don't think by that metric. Um, I think by other metrics you can do it, right? And so the way that I've looked at it, and I, I wrote a piece early on uh, after the sanctions, which... Uh, got an awkward title, but it was essentially of how why why the uh, why the sanctions benefited the IRGC. Right, there was a lot of talk about the IRGC being against the the nuclear deal, um, particularly because their leaders went out and said we're against the nuclear deal, and so that, that's not a, that's not a uh, unreasonable position to take. However, I found their opposition to it being in relative to their opposition to other things as being fairly tepid. Uh, to me, it was a very guarded sort of, uh, no, we're not into this, we're against it. But also, you know, a, a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, like, were it to happen, this is going to be a net good for us. And I think there's two reasons why it was a net good for the IRGC. One was the lifting of sanctions, you know, sort of a rising tide lifts all boats. More money in the Iran economy is going to, is going to help them regardless. The other thing is that it it normalized, it didn't legitimize, but it normalized, in a way, politically, their extraterritorial activities. Because they did not have to compromise on what they're doing in Syria or regards to Israel or anywhere else, there was sort of a, a tacit understanding, I think, on the, point, on the part of the IRGC that all of those investments were, were valid now. Right. If if the United States was going to somehow build up another sanctions campaign on that issue, um, they would have to enlist Russia again. They would have to enlist China again. And without the nuclear issue being a part of it, um, it was going to be unlikely for the United States to be victorious in that regard. And so to me, it, it, it normalized that activity. And certainly that's how it's seen across the Gulf in the Arab states, right? Saudi Arabia, Emirates, everywhere else. That was their major problem with the nuclear deal was that because it wasn't a total bargain, it wasn't a grand bargain, it only looked at this one part that basically Iran was going to use its, use its nuclear program as a way to make peace, but then continue doing everything else uh, in the region uh, like it had been. All right, thanks. We've been speaking with Afshan Ostevar, the author of the new book, Vanguard of the Imam, a professor at the Naval Postgraduate School. Uh, thanks for joining the program. Thanks for having me, Mark.